Well, I, I don't know about you, but I know that my family and I, uh, we have been spending a lot of time in our backyard as this uh, shelter in place uh, ruling has, has been in effect. And I've been really thankful for the spring weather. We've had some awesome, beautiful days, warm days, sunny days to be out there. And so on Wednesday, uh, my family and I, we were eating dinner and uh, we were getting ready to, to, to finish up and we were cleaning up and the wind started to pick up a little bit and some and really started getting you know, pretty heavy gusts of wind. And I was over toward the grill, cleaning up a few things and I heard a crack over my head in the poplar tree that is just at the corner of our porch. And I ducked and covered, thought surely one of those big branches was coming down. Well, thankfully it, it wasn't a big branch, it was small, uh, but I was scared nonetheless. Um, we were talking to some of our neighbors about the, the wind and how crazy it was. And they said they, they have a toddler and they said there was a gust that was so strong that it kind of caught him and, and blew him across the yard before they could go, go catch him. You know, so with the wind, I mean, it's, it's really easy to feel the power of the wind just by looking at it or feeling, looking at the trees or, or hearing the way it's blowing up against the side of your house. It's, it's easy to tell how powerful the wind is, but if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes it, it can be really hard, even harder than feeling the power of the wind to feel the power of the cross in your life today. And so that's why this evening we are going to be talking about the power of the cross today. As Christians, we know the cross is important. It is our, I mean, it's our, our symbol for crying out loud. Uh, and, and we know that the cross is, is powerful and it, it's supposed to be powerful to change our lives. But what does it really mean for you and me to ex experience the power of the cross today in in April 2020 in the context of our 21st century lives. Because sometimes it's difficult, it's hard for us to see how the dots connect between the death of, of Jesus on the cross outside of Jerusalem 2000 years ago and our lives right now. And if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, uh, First off, I wanna say I'm really glad that you're watching, but this may very well be one of the reasons, if not the reason why you've not made that decision to become a Christian, because you struggle to see how Jesus, how an obscure Jewish man dying on a cross 2000 years ago, how that historical event really has relevance for your life today. And so tonight, Christians non and non-Christians alike, if you've ever struggled to connect the cross to life today. If you've ever felt like, uh, maybe it feels like somebody forgot to put the numbers on one of those connect the dot things that they put on the kids' meals at the restaurants, or they forgot to give you the crayons or something. Maybe if it's ever felt like that, trying to see how the cross is powerful for your life today, uh, for your life today. In our passage tonight, uh, our passage tonight is going to put the numbers back on the dots. And it's going to, to show us, and I believe that when we end our time together, that you will have a fresh picture of how the cross speaks into your life today. And so if you would turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 53, it's just a couple of books past Psalms and Proverbs, pretty close to the middle of your Bible. And the first six verses of this chapter of Isaiah 53 are going to answer three questions for us tonight. 
The first question, how is Jesus' death on the cross powerful today? What is it about his death that makes it powerful? The second question, why do we miss that power today? Why do we miss the power of the cross? And third, what does it take for us? How do we access the power of the cross today? Now, Isaiah was written around 740 BC. It started, he started writing most likely somewhere around there. He was a prophet to Judah. If you remember the kingdom of Israel split. And so he was speaking uh, to the people of Judah. Uh, he was warning them, if you don't you know, turn from your ways and repent, there's gonna be judgment and punishment coming. He also foretold what would happen to them uh, in the near future, but he also foretold what would happen in, in, in the long term. And as the book of Isaiah goes on, he really starts to paint a picture of God's big plan for what he was going to do through his people, namely that he would send a savior, a Messiah. Isaiah calls him the servant oftentimes. And he starts to give a description of what he would be like. And Isaiah 53 is one of the places where he, he really describes in, in some of the most clear detail who this savior would be and, and what he would do. So let's read Isaiah chapter 53, verses one through six. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Based on what Isaiah's written there, when we look at our first question of how is Jesus' death on the cross powerful for us today, we see that the cross is powerful today because of who was on the cross and because of why he was there. Now, verse one and two, notice a couple phrases there. In verse one, Isaiah says, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Now that phrase, the, the arm of the Lord is a reference to God himself acting to save his people, like he's reaching out with his arm to save them. Uh, one commentator said that the arm of the Lord is not someone or something apart from the Lord himself, but is the Lord himself in power. But then verse two says, he grew up before him like a young plant. 
And so first verse one, this, this coming Messiah, this coming Savior is the Lord. But then verse two, somehow he's separate from the Lord in a way that he can be before the Lord. So he is the Lord and before the Lord. And there's some mystery and there's some tension in these first two verses. And really for the next 700 years, that mystery was there. How can a Savior be the Lord himself, but also be before the Lord? Now, this side of Jesus with the New Testament, uh, the, the tension is still there because it's so hard to understand how Jesus is fully God and fully man, but, but still, but the mystery is resolved because the Bible teaches clearly that Jesus Christ was not just a normal man, but he was, he was fully God and he was fully man. And so while there's still tension with that, it is, it is still clear. It is clear to us today. John chapter one, verse one, just one reference on this. It says, in the beginning was the word. And if you read the rest of John one, you realize word means he's talking about Jesus. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So in the same way as Isaiah was saying that he is the Lord and he is before the Lord, John is saying that this Jesus, that he was with God and he also was God. So that's, so now, so now who was on, who, so who was on the cross? Well, we can answer that. It was Jesus who is the God man, fully God, fully man, the son of God, the son of man. That's who was on the cross. And so now the question of why he was there. Isaiah goes on in verses five and six, and he tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then verse six, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he was there to pay for our sins as a substitute. Now, again, this was probably mysterious that this person coming as the Lord is going to bear our sins. He's going to step into our place how, how is this going to happen that, that our sins are going to be put on him? I mean, they'd seen the scapegoat, they'd seen the sacrifices, but this is almost too marvelous to even comprehend. But again, the New Testament makes this clear, and this is central to the teaching of, the, of what the cross means, that the cross is, is, is about Jesus taking our place. He died as a substitute. First Peter 3, 18, just one verse, it says, Christ suffered for our sins. Uh, so the Bible, it teaches us that the cross is powerful to save uh, because Jesus took our place as a substitute. Now, you could imagine maybe if, if uh, you, like, like I was, was raised on the wooden spoon or, or the hickory, if you had done something egregious that warranted um, uh, some consequences, and at the last minute, your brother steps in and says, dad, hold on. I've got this. I'll, I'll take it for him. I mean, you wouldn't know how to react because that's so unrealistic. Like that's strange. And would that even be allowed? Because I mean, is it fair? Is it right for the brother to get, get punished for you? And, and so probably not you as a parent, you wouldn't, you know, wouldn't let them take the place, but, but how in the world it, it's still hard to wrap our minds even around how a substitute can, can work because a substitute doesn't even always work in, in human situations. Just like that, um, maybe it works to pay a debt. You know, if there's a debtor, they really don't care whose money it is. They just want to get their money. But substitutions certainly don't work for, for jail time or like the death penalty, those kind of things. The person who did it has to pay the consequences. And so why is it that Jesus 
in terms of our sins, where we deserved that sentence of death, why could Jesus be a substitute? What made him able to step in our place? Well, uh, who he was plays a, a huge part in this. The fact that he was fully God and fully man. Um, because if he was only God, then he would not have been an, an acceptable uh, substitute. Uh, because even if he just looked like a human, even if he looked exactly like a human, but wasn't really a human, that's not enough. He would not have been an acceptable sacrifice. Uh, In this uh, shelter in place kind of thing, I've learned a a little bit more about what an acceptable uh, substitute is from Walmart grocery pickup. Uh, Walmart grocery pickup, if you've not tried that, it's awesome. You order, you do your shopping on the phone or the computer, and then you pick a time and then you drive there and they come out, load your cars up and you leave. Perfect social distancing uh, shopping situation. Uh, but oftentimes you know, there's things that they don't have. Don't even try to buy ground beef or chicken or toilet paper right now. They just won't have it. But other times then maybe they don't have exactly what you had, but they can give you a substitute. And so, and then they, what, but what they'll do is they'll send you about an hour before you know, here's your list of substitutes. You can either want to accept them. Do you find these substitutes acceptable? And so, for instance, if I ordered a regular pack of Oreos and they want, they didn't have that, but they want to substitute me a family size pack of Oreos, then that's absolutely acceptable. But if they want to substitute great value Oreos, then no, that's not an acceptable substitute. It just doesn't match up. And and kind of in the same way, not to trivialize that at all, but if, if Jesus was only God, and not human, then he couldn't step into a human's place as a substitute because he would be something totally different. A human has to step into our place. But if he was only a human, even a really good one, even maybe the best human to ever live, that wouldn't work either because, you know, while just being God made him not an acceptable substitute, just being a human would have made him not an able substitute. Because as a mere human, he's in the same boat that you and I are in, born with a sinful nature, still sinful. And so even the the best of humans is not able to step in as a substitute because they're still sinful. It'd be like if you're trying to lift a car, and I know if I try to lift lift a car, I'm not getting it anywhere, but you're sitting there trying to lift the car, you're not moving it at all, and your less athletic friend, your less strong friend comes up and says, step aside, let me do that. Well, it's foolish because of course he's not going to be able to move the car. He's not able to because he's just like you, maybe even weaker than you. It'd be like, thanks for the gesture, gesture buddy, but you're just not able. And so in this, whenever we're dealing with sin, when sin is our problem, that warrants this punishment that we have coming, we need a sinless substitute in order for that person, that substitute to be an able substitute. So why, why must Jesus be fully God and fully man? Why, why is he able to step in? And why do we have to have this kind of great substitute to deal with our sin problem? We have to understand the nature of our problem. We have to grasp what sin really does to us and the kind of situation that it actually puts us in. Uh, Just verse five, just pick out the words chastisement. Maybe your version says punishment. That's what it means. It's punishment. Verse six says wounds. 
And so this idea is that this servant, he took real punishment. He took punishment that was coming our way and that punishment is, is death. Uh, and specifically eternal death. Um, death, when we're talking about eternal death, it's not just annihilation out of existence. Um, we, we all exist somewhere forever. And, and so hell, whenever people die, this is hard truth, but it's what the Bible teaches. And it's what when people die. We, we go to one place or another. We either one go and we are in heaven, we are in God's presence, or we go to hell, which is an eternal place of, of punishment. Now, now hell is not just separation from God, like out of God's presence, like God's like, get out of my sight, go sit in time out. No, no, the biblical picture is more like, like God's wrath is, is, is on you. Now, God's wrath, that's another really hard word. Um, it's a hard thing to, to, to stomach. But what is God's wrath? Because we're saying that hell is a place where, we, we would, where people suffer eternal punishment for sin under God's wrath. What is God's wrath though? God's wrath is, is his righteousness, his holiness reacting against evil. It's God's natural reaction against wickedness because of who he is. And, and you, you're, you're made in the image of God and so you probably feel this just in a, in a small way, this, this emotion of wrath or, or anger against unrighteousness, just like whenever you, maybe you hear or maybe you're even experienced personally when you hear about some sort of injustice or racism or, or abortion or abuse or neglect or, or any of those things, that emotion that you feel that, that, that that's wrong and that's unjust, that's awful, that it rises up some kind of burning inside of you. That's just such an, a small glimpse of what God feels. And you, you can still feel that. And, and you're, you and I, we're, we can feel that. And we're still sinful, limited people. Just multiply that. And imagine what God feels as a perfectly holy, sinless, infinitely righteous being when he is looking at the type of wickedness and sin that's in the world. It's his natural reaction against evil and wickedness. That's what wrath is. And so, so God's holiness is unfathomable. Even the slightest bit of evil, his good and natural reaction against that the only, is it, the only good word to describe it is, is wrath. And I can't re remember where I read this quote, but it's being brought to my mind now, but um, somebody who had endured um, just terrible suffering, um, genocide type suffering, and they said the only way that they could endure that was the thought, the, the truth, that they know that there is a just God who is one day going to execute justice. And so the wrath of God, though it's a hard concept to stomach, it is a good thing because it tells us that God is not turning a blind eye to wickedness and evil and injustice. It's his natural reaction to evil. And the bad news is that we all, we all know that we've got at least a little bit of evil in our hearts. And most of us know that if you peeled back the curtains behind our thoughts and our hearts, that we'd actually see a lot of evil. And so there we are, we're, we're guilty, guilty of sin, in the path of God's wrath, deserving eternal punishment coming our way. And in steps Jesus. 
In steps Jesus to take our place out of, out of the path of God's wrath and punishment, an able, acceptable substitute because of who he is. He is able to pay in a few hours what would have taken all of us all of eternity to pay. So, so now we can understand a little bit better why he was so perplexed that in the Garden of Gethsemane on that Thursday night when he was betrayed, that, that he was so perplexed that he sweat blood. He was not just fearing the physical pain of, cross, of, 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 of crucifixion, which was horrendous. The Romans designed it to be the opposite of a quick and painless death. They designed it to draw out the suffering as long as they could. So that was in itself something to dread. But mostly Jesus, what he was praying when he said, take this cup from me, he was talking about the cup of God's wrath saying, take this from me. That's what he was looking at. The next day when he would be crucified, he knew that he would suffer in a moment of time all the wrath that all the sin in all the world had incurred. Now, Romans chapter three says that when Jesus died on the cross, that it revealed the righteousness of God because he, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The image there is that at the cross, it proved that God wasn't just like turning a blind eye, but over time in his divine forbearance, what it looked like maybe to the angels or to people looking on is like, God, these people are, are wicked. They're sinful. They deserve just to be zapped and, and put like, why are you holding back your wrath from them? And, and what God was doing is he was holding it back because he knew that it would all be poured out onto the son of God one day. And so the image is like, like all the sins of the world are building up like the waters behind the Hoover Dam. Every sin building up and it's God's wrath and it's his right good reaction, his response against evil. And, and, and it says, if we were destined to have that break onto us, but at the cross, what happened is Jesus stepped in the path of that. And it's as if the Hoover Dam broke and all that water came and it focused on him, kind of, kind of like the way, I mean, imagine the difference between a, a lazy river and a pressure washer. <laughs> all of God's wrath being focused in onto him in a moment of time because of who he is. Fully God, fully man, sinless, eternal God and sinless human. He was able in a few hours to, to pay the full penalty so that the punishment was fully paid and he could shout, it is finished, paid in full. And so the thought as Isaiah was getting this vision and getting this word from the Lord, the thought that, that our God would save us in that way, it's just unthinkable. It's so unfathomable because it's so good. And that's why in chapter 53, verse one, he says, who has believed what he has heard from us? It's, the idea is that, is that how would, would God ever, who can believe that God would do something like this to save us? And so when we add it up, when we we look at it, at who was on the cross and, and why he was there, of course, the cross absolutely has power to change lives throughout all eternity because of who he was and because of what he actually did there. But now for the second question, why do we miss it? Why do we miss that power in our lives today? And based, based on this passage, I think we miss out on the power of the cross today because in our wisdom and strength, 
we can reshape or shun Jesus. Look at verse two. It says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, young plant, that word, it, it, it literally is kind of like what my grandfather used to call suckers. Uh, it's the little shoots at the bottom of a plant, like a tomato plant. And he would always, he taught me that you, you pluck those off because they prevent the plant from uh, bearing as much fruit as it could. And it says, that's kind of what Jesus looked like to people. He looked like a, a little uh, shoot off the bottom of a plant that's kind of pointless. He came in a very unexpected way. Uh, root out of dry ground, that image there, that speaks to his humble beginnings. I mean, Jesus, when you look at it, he really came from a nobody family from nowhere. Sure, you know, you trace his lineage. They were you know, descendants and you know, Joseph and Mary were descendants of, of David, but they were not living like kings by any stretch. And then when he ministered in his hometown in Matthew chapter 13, after he taught in the synagogue, the reaction was basically, wait, who is this? Isn't that Mary and Joseph's son, the carpenter's son? Like we know his brothers. They're a bunch of knuckleheads. Uh, who does he think he is? And then no form or majesty. That says, in other words, well, he doesn't look much like a king. He doesn't look much like a savior. And, and so as a result, we, we've been trying, people, when we look at Jesus, we've been trying to reshape him or, or push him away. Just listen to a few of these quotes. Uh, Gandhi, you've heard of Mahatma Gandhi. This is a quote from his autobiography. He says, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice and a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. Or this one from uh, Sir Alfred Ayer. He was an Oxford philosopher. And he said that of all the major religions, he uh, estimated, he valued Christianity as the worst because it rests on the allied doctrines of original sin and vicarious atonement, which are intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. In other words, he wanted to shun Jesus. He's like that whole idea that, that he was punished for our sins. That's just barbaric to think that God would do that if you believe in God. And listen to this one, uh, Adolf Hitler. He, he said, why did the religion of Germany have to be Christianity with all its meekness and flabbiness? Uh, basically what he's meaning is it's kind of a sissy religion. He said, you got a dying savior. Why could we have not as Germans, why could have not had a country where they had a religion more like the Greek and Roman gods, where they have gods of war and strength? Why, why Christianity with all its weakness? So you look at that, but and it's almost appalling as a follower of Christ to read that and read those reactions. But, but God is not surprised at all by, by these rejections of, of Jesus and, and the way he saved us on the cross. Because Isaiah foretold, God foretold through Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was even born that he would be despised and rejected. Verse three, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised 
and we esteemed him not. That, that image there where it says, as one from whom men, men hide their faces, that's the same basic image of what happens whenever you're at a traffic light and there's somebody there with a sign asking for money and you either don't have any cash or you don't want to give them the time of day. And so all of a sudden your cup holder becomes the most interesting thing in the world because you're trying your hardest to keep from making eye contact with them. That's the image there. Hiding his face, hiding our faces. That's what Isaiah is saying that we did to Jesus. Basically like, like don't make eye contact with me. I don't even want to really look at you. And the reality is though, it's not just uh, atheist philosophers and the Gandhis and the Hitlers of the world who try to shun or reshape Jesus. But our natural reaction, the natural reaction uh, of, of fallen sinful people when we see this savior is, is to, to turn our faces away from him. And why is that? Isaiah says the reason, even if you're not aware of it, even if we're not aware of why, at the bottom of it all, the reason we don't want Jesus to make eye contact with us is because we don't want to see our sin. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Notice that in verse three, how how the, the turn happens in the passage. He was despised, we esteemed him not. So we're hiding our faces from him. And Isaiah is saying, he's bearing our sins. He's bearing our griefs and our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And so we turn our faces away from him, even if we don't realize it, because he's bearing our sins. And so what we do is we reshape him into something easier on our eyes. Maybe he's a good teacher, he's a, he's a philosopher, he's a philanthropist, he's a, a martyr, he's, a, he's an all-around good guy, I like Jesus. A lot of people, most people like Jesus. Um, or, or we shun him altogether as a lunatic um, or as a legend who after he died, his followers just made up these stories about. And, and so here's the thing though, if, if you're not a Christian, and if you're watching this tonight, the most important question that you need to ask yourself is, is, who do I say that Jesus is? Who do I say that Jesus is? And, 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 but make sure that you're aware. Just do some searching in your heart. Could be the reason that you're turning away from Jesus. The real reason be that you don't want to see your own sin. Because when you look into his eyes, what you'll see is you'll see that he loves you and that he bore those sins for you because he has love for you and he wants you to experience the grace of God and the mercy of God. Now in a Christian's life though, I mean, we love Jesus, we wanna follow Jesus, we wanna give him you know, our whole lives and our hearts. And, but how is it though that, that we still struggle sometimes to connect the dots between the cross and our life today. We struggle for the cross to be powerful in our lives today. And, and why, why is that? Maybe we in our own way, maybe not quite as blatant as those quotes we were reading, but in our own way, sometimes we try to reshape or even shun Jesus and, and don't know it. So when we shun Jesus, when we turn away from him, we do it in one of two ways as Christians. Uh, on the one hand, we, maybe we stiff arm him. We just, 
we're having fun and we know that the way we're living isn't really the way of a disciple. We're not pleasing him, but we're having a good time and we just kind of don't want, don't make eye contact with me, Jesus, because I'd be convicted for my sin. And maybe that's, maybe that's you. The second way we shun Jesus is, which I think may be more common, it's the one I definitely struggle with, is, is shame. And, and if that's you, you, we resist looking at Jesus because we're ashamed that we've let him down. We know that uh, he's got this standard for what it means to be a good Christian man or, or woman, and you know the kind of person you're supposed to be, and, and you're afraid that when you look into his eyes, that he's going to zap you and make you feel guilty. And so you're hiding your face from him, maybe keeping yourself like really busy or numbing yourself with TV or distracting yourself with social media or, or work or, or whatever. But here's the thing though, it is an absolute lie that he is going to zap you because if you are in Christ, Romans 8, 1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this idea that if you look into his eyes, he's going to zap you and make you feel guilty or ashamed is a lie straight from Satan. So don't believe it. Don't believe it. Whenever Satan tempts you to despair and he tries to point out that guilt inside of you, no, 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 look to the high priest who is seated there who made an end to all your sin. When you look into his eyes as a Christian, when you turn and confess your sins daily, when you ask him to forgive you of your sins, your sins were paid for. He suffered the wrath. He endured the wrath. He endured the wrath. So don't, don't turn away from Jesus. There's no reason for you to turn your face away from Jesus. Because you can, when you, when you look at him, you'll find love and mercy. And by looking at his wounds, you can be reminded that by his wounds, you were healed. And yeah, our sins are ugly. And yeah, maybe we mess up a lot, but his wounds are big enough to pay for them all and to heal you from every sin, every sin that you ever will commit. And on the other hand, as Christians, you know, when, if we don't shun Jesus, sometimes we try to reshape him. And I think that happens most of the time whenever we get caught up in the busyness of life where we're I don't know, chasing our careers or we're struggling with, with paying bills or, or just this, the busyness of life. And, and I think sometimes what happens is we think, we maybe even pray, I don't need the dying Jesus. I, I, Jesus, I don't need you on the cross right now. I need, the rich, I need rich uncle Jesus. Like, I know my sins are paid for, but how am I going to pay this bill? Or maybe, Jesus, I don't need dying Jesus. I need career coach Jesus because I lost my job. Like, no, Jesus, I don't need you on the cross. I need marriage counselor, Jesus. And all the while he's saying, no, yeah, I can, yes, I can help you with those problems, but, but don't think that the answer's not in the cross. We, t- we tend to think that our greatest need, we, we th- tend to think that we know what our greatest need is. And we, we looked all these different saviors and he's saying, no, your, your greatest need is, is, is grace and mercy. So start at the cross. Because as long as we, we shun or we try to reshape uh, who Jesus is, we, we won't experience the true power of the cross. And so this third question, how do we access the power of the cross today? The, pa- the pathway to the power of the cross today is seeing your sins on Jesus. So look at Isaiah chapter four again. It says, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
So why is it that we are tempted as human beings to to turn away from, from the dying Jesus and kind of even look down our noses at him and think, how could you help me? It's kind of like if there's a teenage daughter who looks down her nose at her mom because maybe she doesn't dress the way that she'd like her to dress, or maybe she doesn't drive the car that she would like her to drive. And the teenage daughter is unaware of the fact that the mom's wearing those outdated clothes because she, so she can afford to put the daughter in the clothes that the daughter wants to wear. And the mom's driving that old beat up car that she's embarrassed to ride up to school in because she's putting away money to pay for the daughter's college. And this daughter unaware that the reason for her mom, the way her mom looks and what she drives is because of her love for her, she still looks down her nose. And that's the kind of the same way we do. We, 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 we look down our noses at Jesus because we, we think we know what we need. We think we know what's going to give us peace and satisfaction. And, and we run to, to different saviors because we think that Jesus on the cross is, is not what's going to heal our souls today. And I think the reason is sometimes we look at the cross and we don't use it right. <laughs> because when we look at the cross, what we need to do is we need to first see our sins there. Now, the dying thief, the, uh, the robber, the one that Jesus was crucified between two robbers. And if you remember from the gospel accounts, one of them was mocking Jesus. And, and the other one looked at the, the, uh, the, uh, the other mocking robber and said, why are you doing that? We're here because we're guilty. And he did nothing. And then he turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your, your kingdom. The thief, I believe, was the, the first pe- person. Because when he said that, Jesus said, surely you will be with me today in paradise. I think the thief was the first person to truly accept Jesus on Jesus' terms as a savior on his terms, the first one to see that. And I think the reason was, I think the reason was he was literally brought to the end of himself. He had no more time. He couldn't tell himself, well, I'll just get out of this. Tomorrow's a better day. He, all of it, he couldn't, all of his money was gone. And like literally his hands were, were nailed to the cross so that he couldn't cling to anything else but Jesus. And so what he was able to do, he, he looked and he, he saw that Jesus was his only hope for any type of salvation. And he acknowledged his sin and he said, Jesus, help me. I think he understood profoundly what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whatever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so seeing your sin on Jesus is in essence, it's about denying yourself. It's about saying, no, I don't have it together. I don't know what I need. My sin is the problem and I have no solution. No, Jesus, I don't need a new job. I don't just need a new car. I don't just need all these things. Like sure, like maybe these are real needs in my life, but most fundamentally what I need is you. I need you in my life. So for the non-Christian, non-Christian, if that's you today, now believing in Jesus, it's not going to suddenly fix every little problem in your life. Sometimes it gets harder. The reality is, when you shake it all down at the bedrock of who you are, the thing that you need more than anything is the grace of God. 
As my guess is when it says that by his wounds we are healed and the chastisement brought us peace, your heart longs for something. And maybe you can't put your finger on it, but what it is, your heart longs to be made at peace with God. And only Jesus can give that to you if you repent from your sins and believe in him. Now for the Christian, in Luke's rendition of that passage where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, Luke adds, let him take up his cross daily. And I think that as Christians, that's because we on a daily basis, we need to look at the cross and see our sins on the cross so that we can live in the power of the cross for today. We need to be reminded, need to be reminded that even if we're going through all kinds of craziness, if our lives are upset by this coronavirus or whatever, that at the end of the day, we've been forgiven, we have grace, we have the love of God, we know God, and a million billion years from now, we'll still be singing praises to him because we are in his arms and we're with him. And so he will help us and he will heal us. And so the Lord's Supper, we're gonna close this way. We're gonna close this way as we take the Lord's Supper. I believe when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, one of the things that he really wants us to do as we regularly practice this is he wants it to be a time where we are able to see our sins on Jesus on the cross vividly. It's a reminder of the fact that Jesus suffered and died in our place. And so as we, as we do this, the effect of this as a Christian, the effect of seeing your sin on the cross is that you stop bearing, trying to bear and trying to carry the sins and the griefs and the sorrows that Jesus already bore for you. You know, when it says he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, those two words, griefs and sorrows, it's basically like the effects of sin. That sums up all the pain and hurt of a broken world. And so Jesus, he, he bore our sins and he also bore the effects. He felt the grief and the pain that you and I feel in a broken world. One of my favorite song lyrics says, I don't have answers for hurt knees and cancers, but a savior who suffers them with me. So even when we don't understand why things are happening or what's going on, we can look at this and know that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And in the way that we can experience the power and the freedom and the joy that the cross gives us, it starts with seeing our sins on the cross and being reminded that they've been paid in full. So as we take Lord's Supper together, we're gonna look at 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul records this. On a Thursday night when Jesus sat down to have dinner with his disciples, the Bible says that he, he took bread. So if you have bread, says that he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Jesus, we love you. God, I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm blown away and humbled at the thought that you would even let at these sinful lips um, speak of the glories of the cross. Just a humble that you would love us enough to do this. I don't understand it all. I don't, <laughs> oh, trying to fit you into my brain is like trying to fit the ocean into a thimble, but worse. And um, the cross, we see your, your love for us and your, and your justice all at one time poured out on Jesus. So Jesus, thank you for being that sacrifice. Thank you for bearing our sins. Thank you so much. Help us. I pray for my Christian brothers and sisters. Help them to live in the freedom and the joy. They would live in the healing and the peace that your punishment and your wounds brought us. Lord, and I pray for any non-Christians, Lord, that um, if they've been shunning or turning Jesus aside, Lord, that uh, they would turn to you and find the rest and the healing and the peace that comes from having their sins forgiven, their sins taken away, Lord. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.